Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Wednesday, February 3rd, 2022. I'm John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine, uh, recommending that you go to commentary.org, our website, and read our lead article from the March issue, The Unbearable Bleakness of American Schooling by Robert Pondicio. Go read it. Read it, read it, read it, read it, read it. It's amazing. Also amazing, my uh, my colleagues today, Executive Editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Senior Writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And Associate Editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Um, so in the uh, continuing effort to try to figure out what on earth uh, the Republican Party should do with itself after January 6th and the apparent uh, decision by uh, unelected Panjandra in the party, meaning the Republican National Hack Committee members and uh, the uh, nepotistic moron who uh, not only leads the committee, but apparently would censure her own uncle, who is the only person, is the only reason that she is any kind of official in the in the Republican National Committee at all. That is Ronna Romney McDaniel, who has now you know led the censure of Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger. Guess who voted uh, to impeach Donald Trump? In 2021, that would be her uncle, Mitt Romney. Ronna Romney, who I'm not saying is stupid, but is stupid and is an incredibly unimpressive person and is a moron and an idiot, and yes, I'm saying it 72 times, is only in her job because her name is Romney. If her name were Bomney, she would be stuffing uh envelopes in Birmingham, Michigan while while serving coffee at the you know at the uh and she was by the way of course anti-Trump until you know until until circumstances uh forced her in this position. So she of course an unelected person with uh, no no fealty and no response to any voters uh but a desperate effort to remain uh at the head of this uh group of 168 uh, fourth rate hacks. Um, you know, leads to this uh, censure. And basically, um, it's interesting because while the how well members of the House and some uh, craven and incredibly disappointing Republican senators have decided that they want to make hay by saying that the uh, January 6th committee uh, is, you know, simply a hatchet job against Republicans, um, that uh, other people uh, are, are, uh, like saying, and then, and then, no, you know, uh, sorry, uh, it was an insurrection. I was there. Uh, it was uh, terrifying and terrible, and uh, and and people shouldn't be defending and calling it legitimate discourse or anything like that. And one of them, of course, is Senate Minority Leader uh, Mitch McConnell. Uh, we have a couple of other people, including the uh, very uh, veteran Alaska, uh, kind of very interesting what would you call him um ornery maverick uh maverick weirdo alaska congressman don young uh and others and what's interesting about this again is that so this is all a fight in the house uh, the house members are up and the house members want to make hay and a lot a bunch of house members of course also don't want to have to answer to the september 6th committee uh, january 6th committee which i understand they don't believe that you know as members of the house they should be forced somehow to testify before a house committee about their behavior or something like that but you know jim jordan and madison cawthorn and whoever else some of these people um are you know are 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 implicated 
in what went on. And so uh, it is in their interest to discredit the committee. Uh, but uh, what do you guys make of the fact that uh, that this dispute is now coming out in public? I'm, I, but I just, mean we don't even more. have to just say that this was a complete spectacular debacle because this happened on Friday and we're still talking about it. Wednesday. You're talking about the resolution resolution that said that the January said that there was leg a legitimate expression political of discourse. Legitimate political, political discourse in, is the words they use. In protesting on January 6th. And people who engaged in a legitimate pol political discourse are being persecuted. Now, that's a distinction they wanted to draw between the violent and those who are just engaged in your freedom of assembly. And that's a distinction that they subsequently drew, uh, Rona Romney McDaniel subsequently drew in a statement after this resolution had been composed, vetted, voted on by voice vote, and adopted. So they somehow just overlooked in the process of uh, reading this resolution the the idea maybe that the failure to caveat this with except for all the violence might be a problem. And she's subsequently been explaining it ever since, not just in this statement, but there's a piece that Town Hall conservative publication published with uh, McDaniel's byline where she goes into how the the committee is persecuting RNC members and making them lawyer up and spending money they don't have to uh, avoid um, having to you know, testify or implicate themselves in this investigation, which is all happening behind closed doors. So nobody really knows what's happening. But nevertheless, I mean, I don't think it's an especially strong case, but it's a case she's compelled to make by her own ineptitude. And it has now become a giant story, an internecine fight that serves only to remind voters of what they didn't like about the Trump era Republican Party and compel members who have nothing to do with any of this to now relitigate January 6th and position themselves on January 6th and defend themselves against attacks on January 6th. It is absolute malpractice for a party, as we've said, for a vehicle that's only objective is to get people elected to make that job harder on their members. Somebody's head should roll. You know, I, I just, the, oh, go ahead. I just want to say uh, regarding McConnell's statement, um, I, I was surprisingly heartened by it. Um, uh, sad as that is um, because there have been even among those who who are not going the sort of um, full bore. This was legitimate speech uh, and, the, and all prosecution against it is a is a anti-Republican witch hunt. There has been this line that, look, I condemned January 6th when it happened. But that was a year ago. I want to move on. Let's just move on. I Don't ask me about that. And and. McConnell was um, absolutely unequivocal um, in in his condemnation and forceful. And he said this was an insurrection to overturn uh, an, an American election. Um, and the RNC uh, is, is doing something that it's not supposed to be doing. Um, there should be much more of this. I'm glad it's getting as much play as it's getting. Yes, it's all the debacle. But um, I thought it was a very good and heartening indication of things. Well, and the fact that, that right now, I mean, McConnell's actually the one reading the room and the and the, the electoral mood really well right now, not the RNC and not all of Trump's, you know, uh, apologists, because there's so many politically homeless voters right now. A lot of people I'm thinking particularly uh, of the covid moms, you know, the, the parents who during the lockdowns and pandemic years have not been very happy. They voted happily for Joe Biden and they're very unhappy with how he's performing in the job and they would love to have 
an obvious choice, a different choice than the Democrats in the not just in the midterms, but looking ahead to the next presidential election. And the Republicans are going to snatch defeat from the jaws of victory here and just, you know, implode with all this looking backward. January 6th was a, you know, is a is persecution. Trump was a genius nonsense. And it would be a shame to watch. But you certainly have to factor in that this is something they are totally capable of doing. So McConnell making such a strong statement is very, very good because he's not Mitt Romney. He's, he's, you know, he's a, he's the hardcore cocaine Mitch. So it's not that I, I don't even think that Mitch is, is talking to the universe of persuadable voters here who, who don't identify as Republican. The RNC isn't even talking to Republicans here. We have all yeah. the polling in the world that suggests Republican voters also want to move on, whether they're discomfited by the behavior of their co-partisans or whether they genuinely think that this is old news Either way, they want to move on. The RNC is not letting them. And we also have plenty of polling that suggests Republican voters weren't all that pleased by the events of January 6th, just like everybody else. They don't want to be associated with these people. Okay. And the RNC is making that harder. Okay. January 6th took place in real time. Hundreds of millions of people have seen the footage. There are two elements of January 6th. There was the rally and there was the storming of the Capitol, right? Sort of two events. Now, you could say that they blended into one another and the people from the rally came down to the Capitol. And then there were people who advanced on the Capitol building and people who were in the crowd who came down from the rally who did not, right? And that the line that was crossed was the line in which you started to move on and to start trespassing on federal property and then break things and do all that. Fine. Hundreds of people, as many as 700 people, breached the Capitol. Was the rally an expression of legitimate political discourse? Yes. It was permitted. (laughs) There were people there. All of that. There was nothing unusual about it, including the fact that it was a rally about illegitimate, stupid ideas based on, you know, help help being run by a couple of ambulatory psychotics, Lynn Wood, Sidney Powell, Mike Lindell, whatever. Still legitimate in the sense that we have freedom of assembly in the United States and you can do, say whatever you want, you know, um, once anybody stepped foot on federal property where they were not supposed to be that that was that is not legitimate political discourse do we really think that the purpose of the resolution at the rnc was to support the people who are at the rally of course it wasn't it's part of this line that has been promulgated that the people who have been arrested and are sitting in jail in dc are political prisoners being mistreated. And we have all of this argle-bargle nonsense about how they're like, you know, papillon. You know, they're sitting there in a cell on the floor eating cockroaches and, you know, um, and, and, uh, and being beaten. And I don't know what else. I mean, and here's the thing. I don't believe a word of the lines that are coming out about how they're being mistreated. Because... Everybody who is telling me they're mistreated is peddling and proffering uh, lies and uh, I think openly, in some cases, knowing they're peddling lies about the election and about the ballots and about Maricopa County and about Fulton County and all of that. And I don't believe them. 
I don't believe they know what's going on. I believe they believe in the big lie and they think that it's good to to lie like this. And the only reason that that resolution exists is to muddy the distinction between, uh, you know, the deluded people who showed up at the at the January 6th rally believing the election was stolen and the criminals and insurrectionists who stormed the American Capitol. And that is behavior on the part of, again, unelected nonsense officials who basically run the administrative structure of what is called the Republican Party. It is not the Republican Party. The Republican National Committee is a shell. It is a fundraising and organizational shell. Unfortunately, those committees, the Democratic and the, and the Republican committees, are interwoven pretty seriously into the administration of our politics. Um, uh, a lot of things happen because they happen with the official imprimatur of the committees uh, as an organizing principle, how you deal with place, manner, and times of elections, whom you inform, who runs the nominating conventions, all of that. And so it's really, really, really bad that this has happened to the Republican National Committee. But I have to say this again, I said it the other day, these people represent nobody. They are elected by a group of people in their states, you know, sort of 42 people who show up at the coffee clutch to say who's going to be the national committeeman. They don't represent anybody. This is not a representative body. It was for a time a representative. You know, it was, it was sort of uh, party hacks, and now it's ideological party hacks. And um, the hijacking of them and this moron at the head of the committee who doesn't understand what's being done to her. I really don't think she understands it, that in kowtowing to them and in and in, you know, doing their dirty work by uh, by letting resolutions like this go forward or, you know, not doing whatever she can to uh, to to nip it in the bud, uh, that she is delegit She is actually delegitimating the actual political purposes of the Republican National Committee, alienating it from actual voters, alienating the appeal of them from actual voters and hastening the destruction of central party structures and the takeover of them as it's been going on for the last 12 years by PACs and dark money and all of that, because really, this is what you want to this is what you want to focus your attention on a year into Biden, a year into lockdown, a year into inflation, a year into crime. You want to focus on how 700 people in jail who deserve to be in jail shouldn't be in jail because they're being politically persecuted. In 2004, hundreds of people in New York City were arrested by Michael Bloomberg and the NYPD in order to keep the Republican National Convention clean. Um, and, you know, a lot of those arrests were, uh, you know, obliterated and uh, they were very questionable. They were, you know, people were zip tied and shoved into vans and taken away so that they there wouldn't be bad, you know, video in case anybody wonders whether Michael Bloomberg is a good Democrat. You can now say if that's what you think a Democrat is, that he's actually a good Democrat, even when he was a Republican then. I don't remember any of these people saying it's just terrible that these people were zip tied and thrown in trucks to make sure that going down 34th Street, there wouldn't be any protests on the way to the Javits Center. Well, look, D.C. jail, D the D conditions in the D.C. jail are no joke, like setting aside if there's one silver lining to the 
the horror show that was January 6th. And I agree with you. Every single one of them who trespassed should be in jail. And it's good that they are. It's actually brought attention to the terrible conditions. <laughs> there are conditions that really any no one should have to endure regardless of what crime they committed. So I, if you live in D.C., uh, that's been one. You're like, oh, yeah, we've lots of people, lots of activists in particular have been talking about these unbearable conditions in the jail. And so suddenly yeah. when you get all these these kind of crazy QAnon folks who, who stormed the Capitol are like, this is unspeakable. It's like, yeah, it's been that way for decades. So yeah. good. They brought attention to something that might actually improve. <laughs> well, you remember, you remember that? I think it was it Tom Wolf. I can't remember if a liberal is a conservative who's been mugged uh, uh, or a conservative is a liberal who's been mugged. A liberal is a conservative who's been arrested. That's exactly. a sort of famous line. Right. <laughs> so um, these guys went to the Capitol to cosplay. Uh, the American Revol- a second American revolution. Um, one of the reasons that I think the coverage of all this is so weird is, you know, there there is this uh, desperate effort among uh, Democrats and partisans to imagine that this was a serious insurrection, you know, that and they were plotting this and they had this plot, and they had that plot and they were working with it internally, you know, that it was some kind of like White House down or some, you know, some version of a of a of a genius insurrectionist plot in which, you know, the people at the highest you know, levels of government were going to help them do this undercover. Right. I really don't think that's the case. Um, and if they find out that there were a couple of you know, members of Congress or uh, members of the staff of Congress who let them in or something like that, I hope everybody goes to jail. But that's not sufficient unto the day to assassinate Mike Pence or, you know, burn the burn the electoral ballots or whatever. They were there cosplaying an American revolution. And then it was like, oh, this is real. This is real. Suddenly, suddenly, Ashley Babbitt is dead and cops are being beaten with fire extinguishers. Oh, that's the other thing I love about the disgusting uh, apologist right here is this idea that the, the crimes and, and the assaults on the Capitol Police didn't happen. They're being somehow they're being retconned out of existence, 150 injuries among Capitol policemen. And there's this idea that they didn't happen. Oh, those deaths, they happened after. And you're attributing them to the, you know, forget the deaths, forget the forget the death toll. OK, and Ashley Babbitt is not a martyr. She climbed through a window and a cop was really scared and shot her. And it's a tragic event. And she shouldn't have climbed through the goddamn window climb through a window and there are cops there and there's a riot going on you 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 get what you pay for Not anyway that, po- yeah i just want to say because i i recently watched a bunch of video a bunch of the the the, the good detailed video from from january 6th a few days ago and it occurred to me it's a miracle that 20 people weren't shot i mean you had this sea of lunatics screaming about insurrection swinging weapons breaking through the window charging rushing this 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 group of cops behind the behind the 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 doors i mean in any other country there would have been a bloodbath right anyway they were cosplaying and guess what you don't get to cosplay you know you want to play dungeon and dragons stay in your mom's basement you want to play Call of Duty or whatever, you know, whatever zombie apocalypse game that this was this was an imitation of stay in your mom's basement. And if you're not going to stay in your mom's basement and you are going to you are going to um, 
tarnished trash, the, you know, the, the legislative center of our democracy, go to jail for a year, see how you like it. And then come out of jail. They're still doing this. They're still doing the same thing. They were cosplaying revolution and now they're cosplaying Solzhenitsyn. It's just the, it's it it really, it's the same. No, that's, that's great. Yeah. Anyway, good. So come out of jail and then make something of your life. You repugnant losers make something of your life. Do something positive. You think that it's positive? You think that it's positive to go storm the Capitol? Um, maybe you should rethink your priors. And I understand that there is a world of grifters and, and, and bizarre talk show hosts and weird fourth-rate networks uh, that want to, um, and, and members of the Republican National Committee who somehow want to, brown, want, want to um, flatter them and flatter them with the idea that they were revolutionaries, but the experience that they're going through is deserved. I mean, people shouldn't be in jail forever for without cause or charge or anything like that. We've had dozens of pleas. We've had a couple of people convicted. I don't and know not to interrupt, have... to be very yeah. fair, to yeah. the extent that they deserve any fairness, if there's legitimacy to their claims that of persecution, it is rooted to the extent that it's legitimate in any way, it's rooted in the idea that uh, judges are handing down excessive sentences for this behavior that would otherwise not be applied to any other unruly conduct. I, I'm not convinced by that, but that is their argument. Well, there is this, which I am convinced of, um, but it, it doesn't justify any of their, their nonsense. Um, the fact is that for 100 plus days or so in 2020, uh, left-wing lunatics were throwing firebombs and attacking federal buildings in Portland. Uh, I don't think any of them are in jail right now. And that's wrong, and they should be. That has nothing to do, however, with the fact that the January 6th mob also belongs to be in jail. And I don't see that this is part of the 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 horror of this, you know, intellectualized moment, which is, um, you know, that what about ism or, you know, uh, to both sides ism intellectual honesty should require people like Michelle Malkin and others to say that to say that um uh, that was legitimate. That b- what Black Lives Matter was doing in Portland was legitimate. If this was legitimate, I mean, it's not legitimate. Why? Because you don't you because you, you don't like what they're saying. It's these things are only legitimated by the by the by the um, by the virtue of the cause. Well, who adjudicates the virtue of the cause? That's the problem. That's why we have law. Everybody's got a grievance and you're still not supposed to violate the law to express your grievance. We have systems in place to express your grievance. They're called elections. Well, and you have the right to peacefully assemble. Peaceful being peaceful assembly is a is a right in this country. Yeah, It's the First Amendment. Right. Right. Yeah. But I'm just saying that um, that uh, that the uh, that the as I say, uh, relating to the protests, you know, in New York in 2004 and stuff like that. Yeah, I understand. I don't like I don't like commie leftist, progressive, anarcho syndicalist either. And I, you know, and I get a little frisson in my stomach when they when I see them, you know, they 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 ruin things. They create policies in my city that make things worse and all that. So, yeah. So. They get arrested and thrown in a truck. I'm not going to I'm not going to deny that, you know, some id part of me goes good. Let them let them, you know, let them cool their heels in jail for a day or two. Um, and we're all like that. We're all human and we all have the weaknesses. We like seeing uh, the people that we hate laid low and all of that. But 
um, uh, that is not that does not mean that what happened to them was legitimate, and it does not mean that what happened to the the January sixth um, insurrectionists. I didn't want to call them insurrectionists because I really do think they were cosplayers. Insurrectionists actually makes it sound like they had a they had a systematic plan, you know, and that the insurrection was an actual organized, you know, thing with a strategy and a and an approach and all of that, which I just don't don't think was the case. But you know, whatever the, they are. Um, and I'm sure liberals love seeing them arrested and staying in jail forever. And that's fine. But um, because we're all human and that is the nature of but defending them as part of your own cosplay. And the cosplay is Trump was illegitimately elected because Venezuelan communists took over our voting machines. And, you know, some camera wasn't looking some way in Fulton County in the Fulton County Stadium. And then somehow, you know, 20,000 ballots were moved. Paul Gosar, an elected uh, congressman, is is today peddling absolute bullshit that he, I'm sure, knows is bullshit about how 700,000 ballots in Maricopa County are unaccounted for. 700,000 ballots? This anti-Semite, you know, uh, you know, he's like he's like the dentist from Marathon Man. He's a dentist and he's like, the, you know, this filthy anti-Semite pig. And he's walking around, you know, delegitimating de de the election. He's an elected official. So let's see if he can be de-elected, um, you know, in November. Uh, but that is the way you're supposed to do it is we have we have systems to express grievances. Right. We have elections. We have protests. We have you have free speech. You can write things. And by the way, you can also, you know, you can sue. You have you have courts. You can you can make torts and let let the let the cosplayers sue the government on the grounds of wrongful imprisonment. And let's see what happens there. Anyway, I'm sorry to be so heated. I'm sorry to use the word moron and idiot and and all that. You know, ten thousand times. No, it's going to um, start bleeping you if you don't. <laughs> I know it's it's it's, it, it's bad, but it's early. We're actually this is raw and unfiltered, people. This isn't you know basic uh, you know broadcast network. Yeah. You're you're, you're yeah. paying for this. We need a Tipper Gore That's style right. warning. That's right. But in in conclusion, Ron Romney McDaniel is a stupid nepotistic loser. Thank you. And um, with that. Um, uh, speaking as somebody uh, who has spent his life being accused of being a nepotistic loser, I feel that I have particular um, there's particular force behind my scorn and disdain uh, for her um, for her loserdom uh, and, and nepotistic loserdom. And I, I, I don't want to know what goes on at you know Thanksgiving, uh, I, although I assume she's not at Thanksgiving at the Romney house because. The immediate Mitt Romney house for Thanksgiving, there must be 120 people there just from his immediate family. So I somehow I, I, I wonder if like cousins and nieces and stuff are there. I don't know where the hell I'm going with this. So I'm going to tell you that going online without ExpressVPN is like leaving your kids with the nearest stranger while using the restroom. Most of the time, it's probably fine, but you never truly know who you're trusting. Why would you ever risk it? That's why you need to be using ExpressVPN because every time you connect to an unencrypted network in cafes, hotels, airports, basically any network that's not your own, your online data is not secured. Any hacker on the same network can gain access to and steal your personal data, passwords, financial details, you name it. 
ExpressVPN creates a secure encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet so that hackers can't steal your data. Hackers can make some serious cash selling personal information on the dark web, but ExpressVPN has made it easier than ever to keep your information safe. Just fire up the app, click one button, and you're instantly protected. And ExpressVPN works on all your devices like laptops, phones, and tablets, so you can stay secure on the go. So secure your online data today at expressvpn.com slash commentary and get three extra months free. That's expressvpn.com slash commentary, expressvpn.com slash commentary. So uh, a lot of talk still about the governors, uh, Democratic governors uh, splitting off from the Democratic consensus and the CDC guidance and, the, and Jen Psaki saying, we still want you to be masked and saying that they're dropping the mask mandates. And there's some interesting uh, cross press. The New York Times reveals in a story uh, yesterday uh, what we have presumed to be the case, but I think it's the first time we've seen this, that after the New Jersey election in which Phil Murphy almost lost, you know, uh, lost uh, 13 points off his 2017 vote total uh, and nearly lost to uh, a no-name Republican challenger, um, that they conducted focus groups uh, to try to figure out what went wrong. And the focus group said, um, you're, this, uh, COVID, these COVID protocols are insane and you're driving us crazy and we need to get out of this. So it's the, I think it's the first time that we've actually seen reporting that says that Phil Murphy saw data, even though they're folk, folks are not, that's more impressionistic than it is data, uh, saying that his policies were responsible for his electoral a near electoral calamity and that he needed to switch gears. So that's number one. That's in the New York Times today. And number two, uh, so uh, Governor Kathy Hochul of New York uh, appointed governor since, uh, not appointed, I don't know what you call it, installed governor since she is the person that uh, took over after Andrew Cuomo and is trying to get herself elected governor, um, former congresswoman, uh, announced that uh, the mass, the statewide mask mandate uh, would be over and uh, uh indoor mask mandate, the stringent indoor mask mandate. Now, here's what's interesting. So it turns out she is not actually doing anything. The statewide mask mandate was expiring tomorrow, Thursday, and she is just not attempting to reissue it. So uh, she's somehow trying to take credit, probably in upstate New York, for ending a mask mandate that she that is simply expiring. Okay. That's one interesting thing. So if you split New York state between the Republicans upstate and the, you know, and the sort of the commie downstate, she is somehow trying to send a message upstate that she's with the people who want the mask mandates over while in fact having done absolutely nothing to end them except not to act. Okay. And that, however, however, Kathy Hochul, uh, the mask mandates will remain in place in schools, of course. And here's what she said to explain the mask mandates being remaining in schools. Uh, Hold on. Where is this quote? I'm sorry. I'm in the wrong story. She said something like, I just need a little more time. Uh, Of course, we all want to end them in schools, but I just need a little more time. I'm sorry. Give me a second while I. Oh, yeah. Ms. Hochul said this week that she hoped to ease mask rules in schools eventually, but that the state first needed to scrutinize public health metrics. I am optimistic that we're trending in that direction, but I still need the time, she said on Monday. She still needs the time. Well, guess what? It turns out that the school mask mandate 
expires next week. It expires next week. So it would have to be reimposed next week. So who wants to guess that, again, we have a weird thing going on where she isn't going to unilaterally remove the school mask mandate, but I'm going to guess she's going to let it expire. And then we're going to have this. I can't remember how many counties there are in New York state. We're going to have a county by county fight over whether or not masking remains in place or it doesn't. And the final thing I'm going to say in this rant about Kathy Hochul, because it's interesting is there is a mask mandate. It has been lifted, right? It's a, it, we're, you know, it's expiring except on the New York city and, and uh, MTA and all this and mass transit. So let's talk about the two things that people do together in New York state. Number one is kids go to school mask mandate still on, even though the, even though she's getting credit or there's public discussion of how the mask mandate is being lifted and a million and a half people ride the subways every day and they're still masked. Okay. Mark Levine, the new borough president of, of New York City, a guy um, who uh, equals Ron and Romney McDaniel in his intellectual facility, uh, very excitedly went on Twitter, Twitter last night to say, you still have to wear your mask on the subways. You know, it's good you wear a mask on the subways because maybe it'll keep someone from pushing you on a platform or stabbing you while you're sitting in a train car, which is what's going on in the subways. Two subway stops away from me, a woman sitting on a, on a number three train just sitting there, someone comes up to her on the train, stabs her and takes her, takes her phone, um, sitting on the car. Uh, maybe we're not looking through the right end of the telescope at what's going on on the subways when we're so obsessed with making sure that people are masked, that people are getting pushed and stabbed on the platforms and people are being kept away from the subway by the mask mandates and all of that. Okay. I am now done with my rant. I will now go silent and you guys fight. Yeah, well, at the risk of, you know, undermining a little bit of the New York centric focus on this, Hochul is apparently doing exactly what they're doing in California and Illinois. Uh, yesterday, joining the states of Connecticut, New Jersey, Del and Delaware and Oregon, which lifted their school masks mandates on Monday or said they're going to in the near future lift their school mask mandates on Monday. <laughs> California, Illinois and New York joined the chorus by saying we're trying to thread the needle. We're going to lift the mask mandates in indoor settings, but not in schools and not in various places that people can't, whatever. Bottom line is they're trying to find some way to navigate this moment where the CDC is not being responsive, the White House is not being responsive, and these Democrats are responding to um, changing political circumstances, which is what we should really probably be focused on. At the risk of repeating ourselves, the Public health apparatus that we've been living with for the last two years, very onerous, burdensome, truncated social and economic life is dissolving before our eyes. And it is dissolving before our eyes, not in response to some new revelatory information about how the virus performs or some pharmaceutical intervention that we've just discovered. It's dissolving because Democrats are over it, too. They're saying it in every poll. They're saying it in focus groups. Democrats are done with it. So in places that are a little redder, like for example, my state, which is mildly redder than New York, they're getting rid of all of it. And in New York, which is a little bluer, Illinois, California, they're not getting rid of all of it because Democratic adults are over it for themselves. This it's is constituent services for Democratic adults. 
There's a really good example of that too in Virginia, because a few weeks ago when Glenn Youngkin, you know, announced this lifting of any mandate saying, if you want to wear a mask, go ahead, but there's no requirement that you do, you get to choose. You know, he was called Dr. Death. He was called terrible things. You know, then when, of course, the New Jersey governor makes the same exact announcement, he's hailed as a hero, COVID hero. But the more interesting thing that happened in Virginia the other day is that the uh, legislature met and they, half of the Senate Democrats in the state of Virginia also voted to lift school mask mandates by giving parents an opt out. That is notable because these are Democrats who have been fighting against Youngkin, who, you know, criticizing him when when it's put to a vote about giving parents the option to opt out for the school mandates, which is really where I think a lot of these Democrats are trying to split the baby with their loyalty to teachers unions and their and their constituents fear and the the obvious groundswell among the public to get rid of the last of these mandates. That is really telling that the Democrats even voted against this. So I I do think that they are unsuccessfully trying to split the baby. And trust me, none of these people is Solomon. They are really not going to be able to uh, keep the mass mandates in the schools, which, of course, the teachers unions and the Biden administration are doubling down on. And and both it reiterated that Randy Weingarten went on TV to say that. And so and and Jen Psaki and the Biden administration made that clear. That's really where people feel it, as you said, John, in their daily lives, if they have children and then when they're on mass transit. I'll give you a so- personal story to illustrate that. I'm going to a school board meeting this tonight <clears throat> and preparing in the event that I need to, to speak. Not because I want to. I hate activism. You can't move me to be an activist unless a profound moral imperative is upon us. I saw a video yesterday of one of these Many, 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 many videos of people going to the school board meetings and giving emotional addresses and speaking you know, from their heart about the profound impact this has had on their children, deleterious negative impact this has had on their children and why it needs to end. And one of these people said, listen, I wouldn't be able to live with myself if I didn't do this, if I didn't speak out now in this moment in defense of my children. I feel the exact same way. I don't want to do this. I, I have many other things I'd rather be doing with my time. I'm being dragged, kicking and screaming into political activism against all instincts that I possess to avoid political activism. I guarantee you I'm not alone in that sentiment. You know, uh, people people involve themselves in politics not for abstract reasons. I mean, a very small number of people are interested in politics because of the ideas. People get interested in politics because of very practical things that they need to have happen or because things are happening that uh, strike them as being injurious to themselves that they can correct. You know, a bad zoning regulation that is making it very difficult for you to, you know, paint your house a certain color or, or you know, uh, an onerous uh, or, you know, problems with your... Uh, sewage because um, not an insufficient amount of money is being spent on public works and you want more spending on public works or there's too much spending on public works or whatever um, and you your tax dollars are going the wrong way it's very practical people get involved in politics or practical this is the most practical thing on earth which is every day 75 million uh, kids go off to school or some some number like that 50 million 55 million kids go off to school and they have a hundred and you know and they have uh, you know there are almost 100 million parents let's say i mean most people have more than one kid so i don't know how many parents you know 80 million parents or something like that and their daily lives are being affected every day by are there masks are there this is there school i know and i know there are a lot of places in which not none of this is being observed but remember, the places where it is being observed are vastly more populous than the places that aren't, right? 
I mean, the whole point about, you know, the, the, the famous electoral map where you look at the map and it looks like most of America is, you know, just solid red, right? And there are only these kind of 10 locations in the country that are like hard blue. Uh, and yet there are more people in those 10 locations than there are in the 3,300 other counties in the United States in which, they, in which uh, everybody is, is red. So uh, parents are uh, disproportionately, um, you know, in, in more populous areas and they are going to do what they're gonna do because their, their access are being gored, their lives are being affected directly in a way that they have never been affected before. And I, I mean, mostly outside of the world of the very engaged for about a year, people were very um, compliant. People were very compliant with all of this. They were scared. They were worried. They didn't know. They're not doctors. They were told that all this was good. And then, you know, as the data began to build up and build up and build up and build up. And it was clear that something was going on here, that uh, policies were being insisted upon uh, on the basis of supporting the emotional comfort of certain people and not because of the hard science and not because of whatever. Um, and I would say that there, that the, this revolt has been kind of a slow build. You know what I mean? I mean, it's, it's, it's a slow build in the sense that, you know, if you look at Canada and the truckers and all of that, um, you know, it took two years. Uh, Canada has an unbelievably draconian COVID regime. Um, and, you know, you look at it, you go, oh, my God, where did this come from? It came out of nowhere. It didn't come out of nowhere. For the most part, Canadians are very compliant people. Um, and, you know, they were just pushed too far. They were pushed too far. There was one regulation too many for people who are like, okay, that's it. I sit in a truck. 20 hours a day by myself and you're going to you're going to force me to quarantine for 2 weeks if I don't want to get vaccinated I'm not even interacting with anybody and if I'm interacting with people I'm off I'm I'm taking things off trucks and putting them on trucks and covid doesn't attach to surfaces covid doesn't attach to right so it actually took a long time for a lot of this to happen and look at noah i took a long time for noah <laughs> have to go to a school board meeting and start and start you know yelling his lungs out if he has to yell his lungs out the i don't know how much i resent this I, I really really resent this but that's that's i think there's a really interesting distinction at play here because i think a lot of activism in this country in this century um on the left and the right um is shallow is cosplay right uh and is fashionable uh, so much of what we've seen, the people who come out marching and yelling with placards, um, you know, five months later are are, you know, screaming about um, uh, why why the cause that they were defending is now resulting in crime in their neighborhoods. They're they're they're, they're done with that. Um, there's a big difference between the sort of fashionable lefty activism and the slow simmering stuff that that cuts to your personal life that gets you uh against your your better judgment and against your instincts out there trying to say something about how how things are affecting you in your life and it's it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out how how this real genuine sincere activism uh affects things as opposed to the fashionable kind that we've been uh so inundated with well and that this is where i think the next few weeks the stark uh, distinctions that that these 
governors who still don't, who are still clinging to the mask mandate for children are being exposed. And, and it's parents who aren't necessarily politically opposed to anything else they do. But on this, they're, they're, they're done. And kids are the most vulnerable. They can't vote. They, can, they have to be represented by someone in, in, in you know, most cases that's absolutely got to be their parents. And so parents like Noah, and I was the same about school closures. This is the worst. It's, it's just horrifying to have to go out and act like an activist about something, but you just have to, because at the end of the day, your kid cannot stand up to a regime that insists on covering their faces when the rest of the world never did this. Kids under 12 were not masked around the rest of the world. We were, we have been outliers. We have, we will be seeing the long-term impact of this on this generation of kids between the closures and the masking for years. This is a huge, huge mistake that we made as a country. So we absolutely should be angry about it and fighting about it. And these governors who are, and, and these mayors who are still going to try to say, oh, and these school boards that are still going to try to insist on these mandates are going to be in for a rude awakening that's, and should be. That's exactly it is that. I, I wish that you could just count on entropy to do the work for us, that you know Democrats would take the cues from their elected officials at the highest levels of their state and would just simply allow this to disappear. But they won't. They will cling to it like flotsam in a shipwreck for as long as they possibly can. It needs to be ripped from their hands forcibly. The consequences must be made tangible for them. And as a result, we are all being drafted into this campaign. And I'm not going to forget it. No matter what the structural conditions are in November, I'll remember. I, w- I want to commend Abe for the point that he just made, because I think it, it, it's very original and it is worth ruminating on. Um, there is a category in American politics that really sort of came into being in the 1960s or 1970s, and that is activist. It's like one of those things, if you watch MSNBC, Somebody comes on, they're an activist, they're this activist, they're a civil rights activist, they're a Latin, they're a Latinx community organizer, John, community organizer. But, but, but it's interesting because that activism is always, of course, being expressed on behalf of a larger community, right? It's it, that's the idea is you're an activist to help people in the X community get the rights that they deserve or get the whatever, whatever it is they deserve. And, um, uh, we, they, they exist as stand-ins, right? They're, they're booked on shows and they're quoted in things as representatives of this larger community. But they're not representatives of a larger community. They're representatives of American left liberalism. And they, they are plugged into these holes in which they fit as the, as the person in the left liberal community that speaks for, you know, disabled Latinx people or transgender this or something like that. The idea that each of those people represents hundreds of thousands or millions or tens of millions of people is a fiction. This is a profession. The activist is a, is a job. It is a job that people get. They get it in, in the nonprofit sector, which in the United States is enormous it is it is gigantic it is a multi-hundred billion dollar if not trillion dollar industry in the united states and and we and people have been gulled including liberals themselves into believing that people who call themselves activists are standing on the shoulders or you know basically have emerged athena like from the head of a giant populace and therefore, you know, is their tribune and their representative and their spokesman. And they're not. They're not. They are 
worker bees in a collectivist system in which they are taking on the coloration of the group that they are somehow supposed to represent and they are not representative. You know who's representative? Representatives, people who are elected, people who are actually chosen. And like, this is the interesting thing about school boards and stuff like that. And to sort of bring this point around full circle, school board elections in the United States are incredibly badly attended, right? And they're, and they're often, often by design. Uh, in state after state and place after place, and this has been true for like forever, they take place on weird days. They take place. There are they're not on election day. They take place on a Thursday in January when it's cold. The whole point of this is to keep turnout low so that the people who actually want to vote, their votes count for five times as many votes. Because if you vote in an election in which people don't turn out and you're actually a voter, your vote actually has an enormous amount of sway. School board elections have routinely in this country have 2%, 3%, 4% participation. That may be over with, just as uh, we've seen an enormous surge in participation in local and state elections over the last 20 years, contested races at city and state levels where Republicans you know, came out to do that and then Democrats came out to come back and fight them for it and all of that, uh, you know, city council jobs, judgeships, state you know, I don't know, county executives, whatever, where there, where there have been contests where there never really were contests before. Um, I be interesting to watch over the next four or five years, who go, who goes out to get themselves elected to the school board. And if they are genuinely contested, these people are going to have to run on issues. They're going to talk about real things and what are real things in schools in a lot of places they're going to be about you know making sure that people have access to football fields or getting new athletic facilities and stuff like that but in a lot of places they're going to be about curriculum and in a lot of places they are going to be about limiting administrators and teachers abilities to preach politics at kids and um you know, that is an up from that is an up from the ground, bubbling up from the ground fight that has been started because the bear was, you know, because a sleeping bear was awakened. Um, and I don't know that it's going to happen, but it could happen. And if it happens, it will have, you know, it will have reverberating effects for decades because those people get themselves involved in politics and they get on the school board and then they run for county executive and then they run for Congress. And then they have the whole experience of they, they get the, the, the training and the shading and what goes on that we've seen, particularly in Republican politics, people entirely miss, right? They, we now get this uh, Yuval Levin's famous, the platform, right? There are people who run for Congress because they want a platform. They want to go on Fox News. But this new generation of people that might be generated by the COVID crisis will actually be doing the spade work at the local level and learn how to run, how to do this professionally, appropriately, and skillfully, and uh, may, may themselves become a different kind of political force. Uh, 
They're, and but they're it, not being recruited by groups like Justice Democrats, as AOC and others were, who, who are who are cosplaying at being kind of, you know, grassroots folks right. to, to the point that you were saying and, and Abe's original point. It's I think it's it's notable that when a lot of these parents in particular have risen up in the last few years and formed their own organic movements, and many of them have created kind of parents' rights groups, educational groups, demanding transparency. This is leading to legislation. This is all for the good. This is how democracy is supposed to work. They are the particularly in mainstream media, but also among professional activist class folks on the left. They are called uh, AstroTurf campaign. They're trying to find the shadowy billionaire who's funding this movement that clearly can't be authentic because they don't agree with us. Oh, we got that yesterday. (laughs) A a Reuters reporter asked Jen Psaki, the White House press secretary, if she or the White House had been doing any any work investigating whether American right-wing groups or individuals were funding the trucker protests in Canada. What a bizarre premise for a question. First of all, as though that's the province of the executive branch to investigate where private individuals are sending their money and whether it's a political cause that the White House supports or defends, whatever, that's not your remit, first of all. Second of all, how dare you imply that this is inorganic, that this is somehow something that was just ginned up out of the ether, that you can mobilize this army just as a response to, uh, you know, Koch brothers funding. I don't even know what they're thinking, but it's some sort of psychological comfort blanket they need to pretend as though all opposition to their agenda, desires, wishes, whims at any particular moment, all of it's inorganic, must be. Oh, I, I know what they're thinking. Everything we're talking about here this is about a politics of real things. And so much of the politics that we've been dealing with for years and all the performative aspects and all the theoretical policies about correcting for historical wrongs that are no longer in play, but their legacies are still here and all that. That's the, poli- those are, that's the politics of, of, of the abstract. And they, they can't even recognize a politics of real things. Because the right politics now. of the abstract are really low stakes. Yep. Right. They are. They're not low stakes. I mean, they, well, they, they're great they, fundraising they, tools for the nonprofits that rely on. Them. Well, that that's true, too. But I mean, you know, and, and just to parallel this, I mean, this is like um, when the Tea Party arose in response to three or four different phenomena, the rise of uh, the rise of Obamacare, um, the idea being peddled in liberal circles that mortgages should be forgiven uh, because people are having trouble meeting their mortgage payments and a couple of other things, and this sort of movement arose to say um, this uh, this uh, abrogation of the social contract represented by this kind of radical liberal thinking in the wake of the financial meltdown will not stand. That was a politics of real things. Like Rick Santelli, the thing that began the Tea Party was him saying 92% of people are paying their mortgages. 8% of people are not paying their mortgages. And we're going to basically privilege the 8% who aren't paying and, and essentially uh, punish the 92% of people who are fulfilling their responsibilities as adults. This isn't right. That's not right. That, again, is a politics of real things. That is who's writing the check on, you know, on, on, on the 31st of the month to make sure that the payment is in on the first of the month because you signed a contract, you owe a 30-year mortgage, you want to keep your house, and you are, you are moving heaven and earth to make sure you could use that money in something else like everybody else could. You, 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 you know, uh, you, you could, uh, you could go to Disney world with that money, but you're not, you're paying your mortgage and they are trying to break 
the rules. They are trying to rewrite the rules in the middle of the game, and that is not right. And people said, oh, this is just the Koch brothers. The Koch brothers are doing this. The Koch brothers and, you know, rich people. When it was almost exactly the opposite. Now, I don't think the Tea Party ended up being what people might have hoped that it would be. Um, but, you know, it, it had a moment and maybe it was just a moment in time. Um, but you don't belittle. I mean, I felt this way, by the way, in early 2017. And I think I was right, which is, uh, you know, there was the Women's March uh, in response to Trump. And there was a lot of, oh, liberal, look, they have their pussy hats and they're it's so silly and blah, 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 and all that. And I was like, you know, three and a half million people in the streets on an incredibly cold January weekend. Uh, that's a lot of people. Um, that is that is the basis of a of a of a revolt against uh, against a sitting president. That's pretty significant. And people ought to take notice of it. And I was right. Like, you remember uh, that was the beginning of these um, special elections that showed incredible strength for the sort of anti-Trump candidates. And then, of course, 2018, where the where where the Democrats blew out the Republicans in the in nationally in the House races. And people should not belittle the signs of serious public active, real activism, public activism in real numbers against them. They shouldn't. They should take them in and try to figure out what's going on and either correct for their own errors or try to answer it case, you know, uh, you know, like plank by plank. But the desire, as Noah points out here, the desire to belittle and say, nah, it's nothing or it's all being manipulated by, you know, by a puppeteer um, is just too, too great because people can't bear to think otherwise. And it, it comforts them. And uh, and therefore, they get constantly surprised that they're not running the world. You know? Okay, uh, I'm sorry for my uh, I'm sorry for my um, misbehavior and uh, during this podcast and uh, lack of politesse and all of that. I'm going to be much nicer tomorrow uh, when we will be back with you for Abe, Christina. No, I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.